Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Malcolm Keating. Today we'll be talking to Pascal Mumwini, author of African Philosophy, Emancipation and Practice, published in 2022 by Bloomsbury as part of their Introductions to World Philosophy series. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy, Pascal. Uh, thanks, Malcolm, and thank you for inviting me. I'm glad to be here. Looking forward to talking about your book, so let's get started. So your book, as the title suggests, is about African philosophy, and it's part of an Introductions to World Philosophy series. But you're not writing like a survey or just an overview. Your book is doing something else. It's pretty interesting. So why don't we start there? What is your book's main goal, and why did you think it was important to write? Yeah, thanks. Uh, The main purpose of the book, I think, if... uh, I tend to the title itself. It gives an idea of what I was uh, seeking to achieve or accomplish. You will agree with me that African philosophy has been uh, described as the bearer of a mission. And uh, that mission has been articulated by a number of authors and it continues to be defined to this day. So uh, to put this into perspective, Africa, uh, Africa itself is a, is, a, is a place with a, a formidable history of its own. It is uh, its own memories, grievances, unfinished struggles, and uh, of course, hopes about a better future. So what I do in this book, or what I articulate in this book, must be seen as part of an ongoing history, sorry, an ongoing dialogue with this history where I try to demonstrate that uh, African philosophy must define its own priority questions, but of course, cognizant of the specificities of the continent and what else is happening around the world. So the main thesis of this book, if I may summarize it in two words, is liberation and self-rediscovery. And I think I can uh, uh, explain that uh, at two levels. The first is in relation to uh, where we stand, in relation to the dominant traditions of philosophy in the world. And secondly, which is more important for me, in relation to our own selves, in the sense of where we are, and uh, where we have fallen short in answering to the call 
Africa and know thyself. So those are the two main uh, issues that I think uh, I, I try to highlight and deal with in the book. And we'll talk about both of, oh, sorry, go ahead. Please continue. Yeah, okay. So I, I'm saying in this book, therefore, I, I, I attempt to address those two issues in the, in, in the different chapters as the book progresses uh, by trying to engage what I think are the priority issues in African philosophy and also laying bare the nature of the debate that I think should be central as we develop a literature on African philosophy further. Right, and so we'll talk about what you think some of those central themes are that are important in African philosophy, and especially that um, mention of African know, know thyself is, is very important as well. Let's, let's take a step back um, before we dive into the five chapters of the book. How did you come to be interested in African philosophy in general and in the specific questions that you're addressing in this book? No. Uh, first of all, like anybody who has studied philosophy in Africa, uh, there is an, a, a, a natural affinity to drift towards African philosophy after you have read all the other philosophies that you are taught, uh, whether it be undergraduate or postgraduate, and begin to ask questions about where your own philosophy is and what has been written about it by others uh, within uh, who work within the discipline, whether based on the continent or from outside. So I got uh, to be interested specifically in this uh, a kind of uh, topic and approach that I'm using simply because I, I realized there is something that I could contribute in terms of advancing what I thought was one of the missions of African philosophy. And uh, in terms of also, naturally, just contributing my own uh, thinking to the advancement of African philosophy and how it can relate to the questions that arise within Africa and the issues that we think are central to the practice of philosophy. I think you will see within the book itself, I have tried to draw attention to some kind of context-oriented uh, mode of philosophizing and also try to relate African philosophy to where it is taking place. And that's why I said it is important to be able to uh, uh, to be able to uh, ask ourselves what it means to philosophize in a place like Africa or in an just world like the one we exist in. Yeah. So that idea of uh, the concrete context is is important. And let's let's get let's get to the book then. So. You have five chapters in this in this book, plus the introduction, which focus on different aspects of the relationship between African and world philosophies. 
and one of the most important concepts I think that's going to be relevant for our listeners, some of whom may already already know it, but let's make sure everyone's on the same page, uh, is the idea of ethno-philosophy. And that's central to your arguments in the first chapter and in the rest of the book. So let's just start. What is ethno-philosophy first? And then second, why is this such an important part of your book? Yeah, if we we, we, we look at the term ethno-philosophy, I think there are two ways of looking at that term. The first is its original usage, the original meaning, which is the etymological meaning, which is ethnos and philosophia put together to become ethno-philosophy. And then there is the other sense in which it has been popularized now, and uh, that is a, a form of philosophy that is considered by others as not up to standard. In other words, it is not as critical and uh, interrogative as others would want. And so you would see, I tend to use ethnophilosophy and restrict my understanding of it to its original uh, etymological meaning of ethnos philosophia, which is the philosophy of a particular, originating from a particular culture and an ethnic group. Now, I, I have written, I think, uh, uh, developed an argument where I'm saying, if African philosophy is to be true to itself, then it cannot divorce itself from what others calling ethno-philosophy no matter how pejorative the term might be used. And so I encourage a return to the original meaning of the text so that it, at least there can be a, a judicious a, a review of the material that falls under that category to see whether indeed it is what is described by those who want to look at it in a pejorative sense instead of just looking at it as a, a way of engaging with uh, uh, ideas emanating from a culture and the uh, ideas that relate to the experiences of a specific people that are developed over time. And so we need, for me, it was important that we return to the original first and then we can be able to understand the criticisms that are labeled. Could you give an example of some ethno-philosophy in the, uh, in the sort of non-pejorative sense, uh, either philosophy that, uh, ethno-philosophy that exists or your conception of what ethno-philosophy would be in that, in that original sense as you're putting it? You would, uh, you would realize that there are so many works that uh, others can, can identify as ethno-philosophy. For example, the most popular ones you, you find books on, uh, for example, the Akani philosophy, the Yoruba philosophy, uh, Shona philosophy. So some people say once you, you, you use, a, you, you, you restrict and begin to look at a particular uh, culture and articulate its philosophy, that should uh, go under, under, under ethnic philosophy. And uh, that is where my contention is that you can actually do proper philosophy without even taking it as a pejorative 
in the pejorative sense and articulate the thinking of a, a communal group or a, a, a culture within a, within a, a, our continent. And so I think there are so many instances where uh, you would say uh, on one side there are people who think uh, uh, philosophy shouldn't uh, be so specific about a culture and talk about a uh, specific, like say Shona philosophy, they think that is ethno-philosophy. And uh, I think uh, it is proper philosophy in its own sense. And it depends with how you have engaged with the concepts and ideas and how we are articulating them. Uh, whether it is about the Europa Shona or it is about the Akani or any other group in Africa. Thank you. That's helpful. Um, another topic that comes up in relationship to ethno philosophies is the idea of communal philosophies. So, Maybe you can help us understand what communal philosophies are in the context of African philosophy. And I recognize, I'll just step back and say, I know that with all of these questions that I'm asking you, African philosophy is a a vast subject. It's an entire continent, lots of different language families, lots of different traditions. So I recognize you're you're going to have to pick and choose and make some, some generalizations. But for the sake of our listeners, you know, if you could just explain a little bit about what these communal philosophies are and how they're related to what you characterize as universalism and scientism. These seem to be a cluster of concepts that are important in your argument. Yeah, a communal philosophy is a philosophy that one develops by looking at the ideas that are shared within a community. And uh, for example, we have uh, beliefs about uh, life, death, mortality, and immortality. Those ideas belong to the community. They were developed within a community. And so if, for example, I can uh, pick one example, I can say among the Shona, for example, they have a belief about uh, what constitutes a, a person, what elements, uh, does the person have and uh, whether the person survives uh, their own physical death and in, in what form, in, in what sense. Of course, there can be a number of empirical philosophical questions that arise there. So when you, you, you are talking about a communal philosophy, you are talking about the ideas that belong to the community and which you then revisit and uh, uh, distill for their philosophical value. And then from there, you can actually articulate a perspective that belongs to a particular community. Whether you use uh, the language they speak as the resource uh, uh, to try and distill those ideas, to analyze the language itself and, uh, and everything the same, or you analyze the beliefs and the traditions themselves, they do not belong to individuals that you can identify, but these are ideas that are shared in the community. Of course, not everyone may may, may agree with the ideas, but uh, there is a sense in which they are shared across the community, whether somebody believes or agrees with them or disagrees with them. And that's where philosophy begins. And so when you look at uh, a communal philosophy, 
I I I would I I would hasten to say there is a distinction between what I, I, I want to make, which is the particular and the universal. So our the philosophy that I emphasize, which is specific to a particular group, may actually uh, uh, it may actually be an idea of what we try to demonstrate that the ideas that are, that exist and that uh, come out of a specific community. And those ideas, while they are particular to a specific group, they are also universalizable. In other words, they can be applied beyond the community in which they were developed. So in a real sense, every idea begins somewhere. It is a place and a location, and in this case, a cultural point from which it emanates. But then its truth or application can go beyond the particular community, and that's where the idea of universal comes in. And so, as I understand it in the the first chapter, you're trying to diagnose um, this relationship in African philosophy with particular communities and their beliefs and the, the, the way in which those ideas become universalized or uh, sort of generalized and treated in, a, in an academic discipline and, and how they've been, how African philosophers have been engaging um, in methodological discussion of whether this is even a good starting place for philosophy. So um, maybe you can help me understand a little bit. What is it that you're diagnosing? It seems like you, you want to say, yes, there's some criticisms to be made for ethno-philosophy, but also there are some really negative impacts that have happened by this internal criticism of ethno-philosophy. Oh, oh yes. What I try to, to do in the, in, in the first chapter, which, which lays the foundation of the, the argument in the rest of the book, is to try and uh, map out the kind of discussions and debate that uh, happened within African philosophy. And those debates were key to me because every new student to African philosophy is introduced to that kind of debate where we're saying, uh, yes, uh, this is how African philosophy developed. The discussion about ethno-philosophy, its criticisms and uh, objections to, 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 to forms of work that were seen as ethno-philosophy, and then uh, the reaction that followed, and or what I would call the implications that followed. First, you would see that in, uh, in terms of uh, the arguments that have been put forward against what has been termed ethno-philosophy, they are very well developed. And the manner in which they were articulated uh, was very, very, very critical at two levels. It, uh, it made uh, Africans aware of certain uh, uh, methodological snares within, uh, within African philosophy, certain things that uh, needed to be avoided. And that side is where I think is clearly known, and everyone, I think, agrees with that. So I don't explore that side. Instead, what I emphasize mostly 
is the other negative side, which I call the unintended consequences of the critique. Uh, remember, the African philosophy is an academic uh, study. It's a very short history. So the point at which that critique happened was the, I think, uh, the very point at which uh, academic philosophers or professional philosophers were engaged in building the, 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 the discourse of African philosophy and trying to map its boundaries and trying to show the direction that the, it must develop. So it was during that period that I think uh, in their effort to do what was indeed very noble, there are certain things that may have happened unintendedly and which now affects the layout and our own opinions about African philosophy. So if, if you get back to that, that uh, uh, chapter, my main argument was, uh, was that uh, at a point when African philosophy was beginning to lay its foundation, uh, there was a sense in which uh, our desire to equate what was uh, supposed to be philosophy within Africa to the views of philosophy and the dominant tradition which it, it developed centuries and centuries of refinement of its own self, uh, also uh, narrowed the way in which we, uh, the, the options we had in terms of developing our idea of philosophy and our own condition. So those who have followed literature would see that uh, it, it is at that point that any engagement with a, a, a culture philosophy became somewhat like an anathema uh, to the study of philosophy, because we labeled ethnophilosophy. The way ethnophilosophy was characterized was such that for any genuine African philosopher to engage in meddle in those areas was actually to commit some kind of a sin. In other words, you were trying, you were seen as somebody who was betraying the, the liberation of, uh, of, of the intellectual liberation of the of the African by engaging in ethnophilosophy because it was taken as a pseudo philosophy or a false philosophy. But the the, the 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 thing that was missed was that at that point in time in the history of the development of the subject, uh, we could have experienced or taken advantage of the flexibility of the concept itself and its understanding and inject into this debate our own contribution to African philosophy by way of challenging uh, the very understanding of philosophy as it was then in the, uh, defined by the dominant tradition. Of course, you will see that uh, as I develop the, the, the argument further, I draw from specific examples where there are uh, accusations of uh, scientism, occidentalism, uh, and uh, uh, accusations about uh, what others have called uh, uh, usurpation of uh, communal ideas, trying to then make them individual ideas by specific scholars, when in actual fact, these ideas that are are shared within the community. So my critique was simply to say, yes, uh, what was done 
helped the development of philosophy, but it also had negative consequences. And some of the consequences are what we still have today, where the term ethnophilosophy is used as a stick to beat all opponents who want to weigh or develop philosophy in a different way or in a different direction. Because if you look at the, the, the plane of African philosophy, the most dominant thing now today is what is the, the professional school. But you don't hear most of the sage philosophy. Ethnophilosophy is done, but uh, no one wants to, uh, to popularize that term because of the way it is suffered in terms of the definition. So that's what I try to, 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 to deal with in that first chapter. Yes, in the, in the first chapter, so you, this is your your argument in the first chapter, it leads us into the second chapter where you are really focusing on, uh, it's, it's titled African Self-Apprehension. I mean, I think in the, in, the, in the background here looming, of course, is colonialism and the impact of colonialism on these conceptions that you're identifying. So one of the arguments that you're putting forward in, in the book is that this kind of um, approach is, the, the, is in many ways an inversion of some colonial methods for subjugating and minimizing African ideas themselves. Can you say a little bit about the relationship between uh, colonialism and African self-conceptions in philosophy as it's been developing. Yeah, in, uh, in chapter two, I identified what I thought uh, was one of the serious problems that we are confronting as uh, African philosophers. And uh, it builds uh, from chapter one. And that problem is the excessive hesitation to immense ourselves fully in the exploration of our own indigenous ideas and cultures for their resources, and to use those to try and build a, a philosophy that is not only African in name, but one that develops from the ideas that are inherent within the cultures of Africa itself. So I, I, I looked at the problem that we're encountering, and I, I, I felt that uh, there is a sense in which this uh, relates to the colonial history that we have. That is, uh, there is an analytic model that uh, the colonizers or the first colonials who arrived in Africa, including missionaries, were using in their encounter with the Africans. And that analytic model involved uh, what I, I, I said, and their encounter with the Africans they would identify African culture and then try by all means to show that there is something wrong with the ideas and the beliefs of traditions, which is what is derision. So the first part of encounter is uh, to, 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 to try and demonstrate that your culture is not up to what is expected of a civilized nation. And then they demonstrate the weaknesses, the so-called weaknesses in that uh, uh, so-called pre-modern culture. 
And then after they have done that, they will then prescribe what is what they believe is what is the way to go, which is the orthodoxy. So if you look at religion, for example, everyone has an idea of uh, existence, and it may not be an institutional religion, but Africans have their beliefs, their ideas about God. So this uh, missionary would arrive, and then the first thing is to demonstrate, to, 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 to talk in such a way that uh, beliefs uh, that are African about God and whatever are wrong, and then they demonstrate that they are illogical, they are irrational, and then they then recommend their own, and then we get baptized. Now, when it came to, to, to philosophy, I thought the first crop of professional philosophers were aware of that model, and because they were targeting specific works developed by anthropologists and early colonials about Africa, they went after those works to demonstrate to actually expose the weaknesses of those works and demonstrate their inadequacies as pieces of work in philosophy. That those two levels they did very well, but what they then, in my opinion, did not do well was to recommend, uh, at the level of recommending what we should do, it's when they recommended that uh, our, we should develop a philosophy that conforms in terms of method and outlook to what already exists in the field as the dominant tradition of philosophy. So that's how I, I, I was looking at uh, the argument. And then uh, my my... My own position is that uh, if we had maintained the analytic model and turned it to our advantage, we should have gone further. Instead of recommending the, 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 the reigning orthodoxy in terms of what counts as philosophy and its definition, we should have gone on to challenge that as well, so that at least we expand the meaning of the term to include things that uh, and ideas that you think were unique to Africa and sources that I think were important in terms of exploring African philosophy. For example, we couldn't end at the written only because within Africa we have a short history of the written traditions. So much of what is very important for the development of philosophy lies outside the written records. It is still oral. And so if you engage in philosophy as disputation and development of ideas by reacting to what is written and sticking to only that, then it means a huge part of the resources that could actually contribute to developing an African philosophy that is truly African in its uh, discourse uh, would be left behind. And that's the huge amount of uh, oral traditions that are today referred to as oral literature. Yeah, so language then becomes a, a big focus in the chapter as well. So we, one is this focus on the oral versus the written, as you've just mentioned. Um, and then another is the multiplicity of languages in the African continent and how those um, sort of nation states and um, language families line up in terms of the residue of the colonial project. Um, Let's, let's start with the orality topic that you just mentioned. 
So you gave us a sense of why it's important to look at these oral traditions because they extend back further than the written in the context of African philosophy. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, maybe one of those traditions? I know you mentioned, um, I think it's Akan philosophy that uh, you know, Uredu talks about the, the Ghanaian philosopher who worked with Ryle and Strassen at, at Oxford. Uh, what are some of these oral traditions that are important to be looking at? There, there are a lot of uh, uh, oral narratives about uh, almost every aspect of our existence, like the origin of the earth itself, the origin of human beings, uh, the, 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 the reason why society is organized as it is. As it is. Most of these, you find them in a... In, 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 we find the oral stories or oral sources that are in existence. Now, if you look at those that have been explored, I think they are those who have studied, I think, within West Africa. Do I remember the name now? One tradition, one, one oral tradition, which is very, very popular there about the, you know, the traditional medicine men of the, the Europe. I've forgotten their name offhand, but I can find it. But coming back to my own, my own culture, you see, we have stories about uh, the, the origin of the earth and how it was created. We have stories about the origin of our own human beings and how we came to be in different, how we came to belong to different totems and how those totems were formulated into clans and everything. We have stories about our own, what do I call this? Uh, about the founding of nations, whether these are the, the old, like the old uh, Great Zimbabwe uh, myth about what happened there and how it came to be there. Now, all those stories, including stories about medicine men and everything, they are there in communities. You don't find those in books. And so it is important to go and find out what exactly exists within the community so that when you look at them, you can begin to reconstruct a narrative that may actually assist in laying the foundation upon which our thoughts were laid, whether it is metaphysical or ethical, or whether those foundations have to do with aesthetics, our, our theory of beauty and judgment of what is beauty, or whether it is about knowledge. It sounds like, too, you're pointing not just to looking at oral traditions and in, in extending beyond the written, but also thinking about different genres, because these are narratives, they're mytho-poetic, they're songs, etc. Um, can you say a little bit more about how your conception of philosophy uh, is, is impacted by the different genres of um, these oral traditions? Yeah, you, you see, when I when I look at philosophy and its dimensions, 
I am thinking of uh, there are multiple uh, dimensions in which ideas express themselves. And uh, some of those areas where we can find those ideas are in, uh, in the different genres like the music, uh, like the folk tales, uh, like the, I don't know whether to, to call these uh, mythical stories. But if you look at the folk stories, the different genres that you use uh, and the different types of music that are related to different occasions in the traditional setting, there is a sense in which you can actually build an understanding of what informs all those things into a kind of uh, a, a metaphysics or a metaphysical understanding of what informed those people uh, to be to 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 to, to, to is it to act or to develop those different genres in response to specific uh, occasions. For example, we have different instruments that are used or played in music when it is a traditional ceremony of the ancestors. And there is a difference in music when it is a ceremony like a, a wedding. And there are different kinds of music that are used in, when it is a celebration like today's birthday. Right? Or an occasion where we are celebrating somebody's achievement within the community. Now, those genres speak to a specific uh, worldview and outlook of the people. And it is for a philosopher to be able to sit down to say, uh, to analyze those. For example, it, you, you have a gathering where you open a, today's bottle of gin and then uh, before you drink it, somebody pours a little bit into the ground to mark the occasion. It means something in that specific community, whether we are uh, celebrating achievements or whether it is about uh, traditional ceremony. So it is for the philosopher then to go out there and actually gather the information and analyze it. That's why I was saying in one of the, in, in those chapters, perhaps we, we took a decision too early to abandon field work in African philosophy in the sense of what Oruka had started to develop about said philosophy, I think it could have been expanded so that at least those oral sources that uh, still contain ideas that are unexplored are then uh, revisited because they are still there. And if each one of us within their own community, because we have an understanding of the language, an understanding of the traditions, it is easier for us to be able to go into the community, uh, observe, analyze, and then from there develop those ideas into philosophy. So that's why I was saying perhaps we, we, we took it too fast to then abandon field work and concentrate only on the written records, which are not as, as expansive as you would find in the Western tradition. Yeah, and this relates to to the other theme of language in this chapter, and I think it brings us into the next chapter, which is the difficulty of intracontinental conversation in philosophy in Africa because of the linguistic diversity there. Um, so you talk a lot in this chapter as well about the importance of translation 
as a medium for improving and making a more robust, authentically African tradition of philosophy. And I think this relates to your next chapter where you're talking a lot about dialogue. So um, maybe we can use this as a transition point a little. Can you say a little bit about the transition situation in Africa and why this is so important? Oh, yeah. The first thing is uh, when, when you look at the terrain of African philosophy, uh, there is a, a relationship which you can find with our colonial history in that uh, the continent itself has been divided into linguistic regions that follow very closely the colonial history. So we have Anglophone Africa, Francophone Africa, and then we have Portuguese Africa, Lusophone Africa, uh, for example. Now, and then to the north, there is Arab Africa. If you look closely, uh, it what, what what I was trying to, 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 to uh, argue there is that uh, because of that division, uh, much of the work that is done by different uh, people and philosophers who belong to different uh, linguistic regions hardly gets to be read by others from a different region who are unable, for example, to read or speak French. And so those works remain like a, a debate only among French-speaking philosophers, African philosophers. And then there is a debate among uh, English-speaking African philosophers. And it is often held by those who are bilingual, who can, who can read and, uh, and write in both languages. But in most cases, I, I gave an example of one of the most popular texts, which has only come to us because it was translated from French into English. And that translation was not done because of an African initiative. But it was done because uh, there were scholars in Europe who wanted that book to reach their own readership uh, within Europe. And invariably, that helped us as well. Now, I look at that problem, and uh, my argument was, until we, we make translation part of the philosophical project in Africa, uh, we will find it still difficult to dialogue amongst ourselves. And that dialogue is critical because if we, before we engage everyone else, we must have an adequate understanding of our own thoughts and ideas on the continent. And that breadth of understanding is important because now we'll be able to find uh, ways to contribute to the overall debate that is going on within the world about philosophy. So that's why I, 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 I thought translation would be important. And uh, I, I don't think I would uh, need to emphasize how translation has been used throughout uh, the world and uh, to make almost all, all works that we have in different languages accessible. Anyone who, who has read philosophy, for example, has on their shelves the small books that were written in the classical period. They are now appearing, for example, in English or in French. That was because of translation. So the linguistic uh, uh, difficulty in that division itself, I was saying we can only probably uh, transcend those divisions and engage in dialogue amongst ourselves if we can take translation seriously. Of course, translation is its own problems, 
because for years, like what I'm doing now, I'm, I'm giving the interview in English and uh, speaking about African philosophy and trying to reformulate the ideas I have into English. So, but it is better than not having a, 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 anything translated and accessible. We have agreed or accepted, we have accepted as a point of uh, uh, academic uh, philosophizing or in terms of intellectual operations, that there are languages that we are going to use, and these are the languages that we are using to do the work. So your next chapter in the book talks about dialogue, which I think, as you're pointing out correctly, does need uh, translation in order for it to happen in many different contexts. Um, But in this chapter in particular, you're looking at philosophy and intercultural dialogue uh, and raising the problem of how it is that philosophy needs dialogue in different forms. So let's talk a little bit about what you mean by intercultural dialogue, first of all, and why do you think this is really important for philosophy? Yeah, when when I, I looked at uh, the question of intercultural dialogue, I premised uh, my, my argument uh, for intercultural dialogue on a, a specific question which I, I, I use to introduce the chapter. That is, I, I use the question of what can be done in order to be true to both philosophy and to humanity. Now, that question, I raise it against a, a well-known background about the history of philosophy and its exclusionary tendencies. So when I look at uh, philosophy in the world, I was wondering uh, if we are able, if we can be able to answer that question, what can be done in order to be true to both philosophy and humanity? There is a a sense in which we will not be able to avoid uh, advocating for intercultural philosophy in response to that question. Because first of all, I think uh, if you look at it closely, uh, we are not being true to philosophy if we emphasize a single tradition of thought and uh, making it the dominant tradition. In other words, philosophy is a product of uh, human experiences that are informed by our own culture. And so we reflect as individuals located in cultures about our own experiences. So there must be diversity in philosophy. And then secondly, in terms of humanity, if we are to be true to, to, to humanity, we, we are different people. We are found in different cultures. And so if philosophy is to be true to our nature as human beings, then surely there must also be the variety uh, on the platform itself. Now, to be able to, to, to engage in philosophy in, in a response to that question simply means we must look beyond one tradition, our own traditions of philosophy, and engage with the philosophies from other traditions. And that's where the idea of intercultural dialogue happens. Now, dialogue itself, you see, presupposes some form of respect and symmetry between individuals of different uh, 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 cultures. You cannot institute dialogue where there is not respect for each other. And once we are able, therefore, to dialogue, it means there is a presupposition 
that what you already uh, assume that somebody is something positive to contribute. And because we have been able to live as, as, as human beings, sustain ourselves, it means everyone, every culture has ideas that are important and that are crucial for survival that they can contribute to society. And so that's why I, I, I bring in the idea of intercultural dialogue. I do emphasize though, the fact that uh, the, the question of intercultural dialogue is not, uh, in, my, in my eyes, a, a problem for most of the so-called philosophies of the periphery because uh, we only come to, we do philosophy and we are also introduced to Western philosophy first before even we know about our own philosophy. So our way of doing philosophy is already appreciative of other traditions of philosophy. And so it, if that can be done for everyone, that we appreciate the existence of other views and philosophies from different cultures as the starting point of our engagement, I think would enrich philosophy and uh, have the multiple, multiple voices flourish within the tradition. You say at a certain point that the contemporary situation in Africa is important in understanding how to decolonize. So I'd just like to hear a little bit from you. What, what about the contemporary situation in Africa is important in considering how to, how to decolonize? It, it struck me at least, and please correct me, help me out here, that you're concerned to, to ensure that thinking about philosophy is happening in uh, concrete sort of sense in attention to what's going on um, in the past as well as in in the present. Uh, so I was just trying to understand that aspect of uh, the connection yeah, between well, the past and the present for you. Uh, okay. No, the point I was making is uh, Africa uh, has a history that you cannot uh, ignore. And that history, part of it is the colonial history. And so in our engagement with philosophy, we must at the same time respond to the challenges imposed on us by that history. And one of the challenges that uh, has been imposed on us by this history is the unequal uh, inequality you see in the, the, the field of knowledge generation and uh, where, for example, we're saying in terms of philosophy, the predominant canon is not what uh, comes from Africa, but uh, it is uh, Western philosophy that we study as well within Africa. And so when you want to decolonize, the first thing is we are saying, I, I, I took two ideas. I said there has to be an attempt in terms of uh, increasing the amount of literature that uh, comes from within Africa as part of the philosophical literature, which is challenging the existing canon. And, uh, and then, of course, the different ways of engaging that canon. For example, when you read texts, you must read uh, texts from Western uh, philosophical texts from the standpoint of an African and interpret them that way. And secondly, I spoke about what I call strategic particularism. And uh, there I was simply saying there must be considered effort to promote and uh, focus on specific ideas that are particular 
to Africa without neglecting what goes on in, uh, around us or ideas from elsewhere. But uh, if we, there is no effort to promote uh, this kind of thinking that emanates from Africa, then the marginalization or exclusion continues. And uh, if, if uh, I, may, I may draw an example, I was saying the argument is, uh, much as we must be knowledgeable about philosophy and what is going on in, in other uh, dominant traditions, we should at the same time be also comfortable with the contribution and ideas that emanate from within our own cultures, so that there is a balance between what is from outside and what is from inside, and that makes a better uh, that makes us uh, an individual a better philosopher because you are aware of both traditions and not just one. Yeah, and so when you talk about focusing on um, some of the, the particular traditions in Africa, in your conclusion, you you kind of you do this by looking at um, the concept of Ubuntu in thinking about world philosophy. And I know as I ask this question that you say in the book that this is a concept that defies any simple definition, <laughs> but I'm still going to ask you if you can help our listeners understand what Ubuntu is. You talk about it both in relationship to being an ethical concept and being a sort of socio-political concept. So um, what's Ubuntu and how is it important for, for this um, liberatory project that you've been sketching? Yeah, all right. I think I can answer it best by first of all explaining the liberation, uh, the, the, the nature of the argument I developed in that chapter. Now, I I said there is a tra- African philosophy itself is developing into a huge field, and within that field, you can now begin to identify what I call the sub communities and uh, different intellectual communities that are operating within African philosophy. And most of them have uh, informed by a particular uh, understanding of what they think should be the task of African philosophy. And it is within that context that I I identified what I I thought was the Ubuntu emancipative tradition of thought that is developed uh, in, in, in this specific area of the continent, in Southern Africa, for example. Uh, and uh, that uh, a, a tradition of thought uh, revolves around what I think is the main question, which is how to philosophize in an, adjust, in, in an area that is uh, marked by injustice, given our history. What is the role of philosophy within Africa? And why, 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 what, uh, what role can it play? And then uh, if you look at Ubuntu, it places uh, Ubuntu itself, which is an African term, it places emphasis on the human being and human welfare or human well-being and our relations as human beings. Of course, it doesn't exclude our relations with the environment as I demonstrated in the chapter. So most famously, I think you would hear anyone who was read on one say that there is an, you can express it in terms of an aphorism that to, to be human beings, to affirm one 
this humanity by recognizing the humanity of others and on that basis establish humane relations with them. So it's a way of relating to the community and it is that which underlies what I think is a certain brand of philosophy that is developing which deals with questions of injustice and how we can move forward whether philosophy has a role to play in terms of answering the questions that uh, arise within the community. And these issues are issues of uh, injustice, issues of poverty, issues of the struggles that have their own origin in part in our history. So if you look at uh, that, that, uh, the, the argument that developed there, and saying it is a philosophy that informs, that should inform how we deal with adversities even beyond the African continent to include challenges such as climate change or environmental degradation, because the human cannot exist on its own outside the environment. Yeah, so this seems this is a theme that works at several levels in, in your book of interconnectedness and um, the, uh, the ethical importance of, of these questions, which are they're not merely academic questions, but they're, they're situated in this question of, of living in an unjust world and the consequences of, of colonialism. Well, um, I've taken up a lot of your time, but is there anything that, that we haven't covered in uh, the questions that you want to make sure our listeners hear? Yeah, no, no, not necessarily, but uh, the important thing is uh, when I developed this text, I wanted to contribute a piece of literature to the, 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 this series of world philosophies. And uh, by contributing uh, something from African philosophy and how it can re- broaden the understanding of philosophy, in terms of aiding other traditions of thought to the already existing dominant ones that we find prevalent across the world. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, what are you working on now? The the book is out. I imagine you're, you're turning to and have turned to other projects. What are you doing? Yeah, I, I, I'm still trying to develop some of the ideas I touch on in the chapters, especially... Uh, the pursuit of the argument about uh, world philosophies. And I'm hoping I can uh, be able to contribute chapters that uh, specifically draw from my own culture, the Shona culture, to illustrate some of the contributions that uh, uh, traditional uh, ideas from our culture can contribute to the modern discourse in, 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 in in philosophy. Well, wonderful. We'll look, we'll look for those in the future. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for taking the time to, to be on the NBN. Appreciate it. Uh, thanks, Malcolm.